Hello everybody. Thanks for joining in and welcome to another episode of Scraps, a podcast where we explore the stories of scientific brilliance and innovation told by the scientists and the innovators themselves. My co-host Jojo and I are here to ask the questions that you want to ask them and bring to light their personal stories of inspiration, frustration, trials and tribulations and ultimately success. We are going to ask you our listeners to share the podcast on our on your social media platforms to help us spread the word and don't be shy be public about what you like and we also welcome your thoughts on what you don't like about the show as well. In today's episode, we have a topic that would interest both biologists and engineers. It is a story that I personally got introduced to as a high school student. Back in 1996, I was introduced to a newspaper front page back home in India that announced the Nobel Prize being awarded for a very interesting molecule that looked like a soccer ball or the real football for the rest of the world audience. I had learned in my science class a few years ago that carbon was a building block of life but in this case the nobel prize was awarded for a discovery of a variant of a carbon called as buckyball and for the chemistry inclined audience it's called buckminster fullerene i thought the name was very very appealing this molecule was unique in its strength and had the most amazing geometric orientations as said earlier a soccer ball Around this time I also heard of another two-dimensional structure of this allotrope of carbon that resembled a honeycomb-like structure. For the ones who don't remember their high school chemistry or have don't have a dictionary to hand, an allotrope is structurally different form of the same element. Today we are going to talk about the applications of the other allotrope to Buckminster Fullerene, a 2D sheet structure that's called graphene. I have followed the journey of this allotrope of carbon its honeycomb lattice structure of graphene through the years and I was excited when in 2004 the nobel prize was awarded to its inventors after this I got even more excited a few years ago uh, I think probably around 2015 when the european council had awarded a grant that was focused on healthcare technology to a few investigators in university of manchester in england to advance some of the strands that they were working on today we welcome one of the investigators from this eu funded project and a company executive that was spun out of the efforts from the university to have graphene as an alternative material to build neural interfaces and conductive surfaces for neuromodulation so let's chat graphene but before that let's find out about how graphene got into our guest's life yes you heard me right we're having two guests today and welcome to the scraps the man behind um graphene uh costas costarellos and ceo of inbrain electronics carolina aguilar thank you hello aaron how are you thanks for coming on today um i'm going to start with i just lay some foundation here on generally speaking i mean arun gave us the the soccer ball um like properties of graphene Can can you give us a little bit of just 
upper lay audience version of what is graphene and why is it so miraculous? There's a, there are different structures of carbon atoms arranged in space. And there's the soccer ball version, which is the fullerene that Aaron mentioned in his introduction. Um, then there's another structure that Aaron didn't mention, which are the what we call carbon nanotubes. And these are hollow cylindrical structures. These are arrangements of carbon atoms linked with each other, um, basically forming a hollow cigar. And there's the, uh, if you unzip this type of structure, you end up with a flat sheet of a single carbon atoms uh, arranged in um, two dimensions. And that's why these materials are called two-dimensional materials. These are like sheets of carbon atoms of uh, single layers uh, in their most pure form. And this is what we call graphene. So in a way, graphene is a prototypical material, if you wish, um, in the sense that you have a flat sheet of carbon atoms that you can wrap up and uh, arrange in different special arrangements. Um, and I think this is what um, gave graphene the Nobel Prize before carbon nanotubes. Because for years, we that we were so heavily engaged in the carbon nanotechnology space, we thought that after fullerenes, carbon nanotubes would be the next carbon-based nanomaterial that will capture the Swedish Academy of Science interest. And it did capture the interest, but it didn't capture the climactic decision, I guess. Um, but because graphene came along. And since graphene came along, the... Uh, material was so much um, uh, uh, more pure in that sense, so much more fundamental in its structure and nature that uh, really almost bypassed the carbon nanotube structures. So in short, uh, and before I, I, I come and, and, and list all the, the fantastic properties of uh, two-dimensional uh, carbon-based uh, nanomaterial. Um, I, I want to just put it in the, pic in, in, the in a bigger picture here that we have many different spatial arrangements of carbon atoms through the years. And in the space of nanotechnology and nanomaterials, we have two Nobel Prizes, one for the soccer ball structure, the fullerene, and another one for the flat sheet conformation, which is the graphene. But there was another one the carbon nanotube that didn't get the Nobel Prize. There are also others that are not are more fringe structures like carbon nanohorns, for example, um, that uh, are also there out there in the literature and described. But again, these are all differences in spatial arrangement of carbon atoms. Now, the graphene structure is so um, important because it is a prototypical material. And by being a prototypical material, you have a vast variety of different properties. Um, and all of these properties are um, very um, individually are not that novel, if you want my opinion. So you can find other materials that could um, tick uh, the boxes. So, for example, electrical conductivity, there are, there are many different materials that are electrically conductive, but 
the combination, I think, is what makes the material striking and has captured the imagination, scientific imagination or technological imagination of many people, which is the combination of different properties in one material. So flexibility, transparency, electrical conductivity, chemical uh, versatility, um, mechanical strength, all of these properties in a single material is what makes the difference. So I hope I answered the question quite uh, um, extensively. No. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I appreciate the, the primer. Where, what are some of the, the different industries that are using graphene and, and where do you see future potential uses for it? What other industries? So there's a really wide range of industrial applications that are trying to adopt um, two-dimensional materials. Um, only a very few examples include um, um, uh, composites of different sorts. So one is, say, filtration membranes is one example. Another one is um, material composites in terms of um, building new um, very light alloy, metallic alloys, um, which already contain carbon fibers, carbon nanotubes. So, you know, the tennis rackets or uh, um, metallic frames or cement uh, mixture, cement alloys. There are paints that people are trying to incorporate. And then there are the um, electrochemical properties and electrochemical industries such as, you know, batteries, um, and um, uh, other such industrial applications that you see are attempting to adopt these two-dimensional materials. Mainly those are trying to take advantage of the extensive surface area available uh, uh, for different um, uh, reactions, electrochemical mainly reactions. Um, so there's the mechanical properties that a lot of applications are trying to take advantage of. And then there's the electrochemical uh, properties and the uh, combined with the extensive surface area that the material is offering that you see lots of applications um, trying to adopt uh, two-dimensional materials. However, I must say that none of these applications has yet reached mass production scales. And and. Where is your particular area of interest? Where, where are you applying these um, benefits of graphene? Yeah, we, uh, by we, I'm trying to, um, I, will, I will group myself among people that are trying to uh, translate the material in the biomedical space. Um, there are many different applications there, uh, different maturity levels as well. And the, there are three main application areas in biomedicine where you see uh, usage of uh, uh, two-dimensional materials. One is in the context of coatings, sur coatings for surfaces, and they're trying mainly to use this, uh, uh, again, extensive surface area that the material offers in order to build, let's say, antimicrobial surfaces. And the second area is in building devices, and that has uh, something to do with what we're trying to build, but mainly from the biosensing point of view. So there are lots of um, point of care uh, devices that you've seen in, you've seen in the literature, um, different, again, levels of maturity. These are mainly for extracorporeal use. So devices that are not going to interface with the body. They're, you're going to place the sample on top, so like a um, pregnancy test type of uh, flow uh, devices. 
Um, so biosensors, biosensing devices. And the third that, and that is becoming more and more predominant and important is in um, uh, using suspensions of those two-dimensional materials for drug delivery purposes. So again, you're taking advantage of the uh, water solubility of the suspension, the um, uh, colloidal stability of the suspension, so it does not precipitate, it does not aggregate, and the fact that you are offering uh, a very large surface area onto which um, therapeutic agents can be either conjugated or uh, allowed to absorb, to stick on the surface, and use these two-dimensional um, suspensions like you know, tiny carpets that you move things from one side of the body to the other. So drug, classical drug delivery kind of uh, overall concept. So I think these three areas in biomedicine are the predominant ones. That's fantastic. Thanks for recounting that, uh, Costas. Um, that is an excellent segue into your journey to from from where you started back in the day in Greece to how you started using these carbon materials in your research. Uh, but you it was a slow gravitation towards um, implantable or neurotechnology for you. You were initially working on on drug delivery uh, using carbon nanotubes and other things. So do you want to tell us a bit more about your in academic journey from, from Greece to where you are at Manchester uh, and also your interest in how graphene uh, and these carbon materials came to play a role in your personal um, kind of intellectual curiosity. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so brace yourselves. There's a lot of journey here. <laughs> uh, we are ready. I basically started from uh, Athens, Greece, uh, where I finished high school. And I was a kind of a failed basketball player, so I had no intention of becoming a scientist or anything like that. Um, uh, my, unfortunately, I was genetically impaired due to my mother's family genes, I think, and uh, I, I remained at uh, 172 centimeters uh, tall. And therefore, my basketball career was cut short when I was 16. And therefore, I had to uh, explore different options. So one of those options was to... Um, with, uh, under the encouragement of my dad to travel to um, um, uh, the United Kingdom. So I started by studying chemistry in Leeds uh, University uh, in the north of England. And um, after three years there, I, I did one experiment on the third year, which was NMR of DNA. And that experiment was kind of transformative for me uh, because there I realized that I'm interested more in research and that I find, I finally found something equally interesting to basketball um, that I could think of, you know, um, investing my effort. Actually, at that time, I was playing basketball for the university team and I was coaching the women's team. So I, I was really still like kind of involved in basketball at that time. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of encouraged me to apply for a master's and PhD, a postgraduate program at Imperial College in London, where at the chemical engineering department. And there I started uh, basically my more kind of uh, consistent uh, research career. And my PhD project was exploration of uh, new constructs of liposomal forms. 
So for those that are not familiar with liposomes, so my I was telling you about my PhD at Imperial College where I started designing different structures of liposomes um, for therapeutic purposes. And at that time, we're talking 1992. Um, uh, in 1992, there was a lot of activity around uh, liposomal forms. And the um, this became actually the archetypal, some of the archetypal nanoscale drug delivery systems. Not at that time. So in 1992, we didn't have um, uh, pretty much any liposomal form approved. The first liposome um, drug delivery system that was approved for cancer therapeutics was in 1995, what is now called uh, commercially doxil. So that's a doxorubicin form or, or liposomal form. And I was kind of working at the background, not at the forefront. Most of the activities were uh, run by pharmaceutical uh, or medical, biomedical researchers, um, different parts of the world, including the US, Canada, the UK, Germany. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of, I left the PhD, I finished the PhD with a thirst to learn medicine. And so I actually, when I, completed the PhD, I decided that I need to go to the United States and do biomedical research and learn how to translate all of those different structures of liposomes that I worked with and start, you know, using them for the purposes of actually delivering drugs. So I started off with a postdoctoral uh, fellowship with the intention of studying medicine, which I dropped very quickly at UCSF. Um, and Jojo may be happy to know. So my first kind of transatlantic trip was in uh, San Francisco. I stayed there for nine months, I believe, um, at UCSF. Um, and then because of the uh, um, uh, contract and career uh, difficulties that my advisor had at that time, my first postdoctoral advisor, um, Dimitri Papahadopoulos, a, a very important figure in liposome research at that time, um, I moved to the East Coast, so I started with a second postdoc there, my East Coast journey um, at the Memorial Sloan Kettering. And then in all of this, the funny thing is that they were asking me to deliver. So I became, uh, by default, the engineer that was, deliver that was designing delivery systems. So at UCSF, they told me, okay, we need to deliver DNA. So like, can you get, make us a liposome which delivers DNA? And then at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they told me, we want to deliver... Um, alpha-emitting radionuclides. Can you, can you design a liposome system where we can load it with alpha-emitting radionuclides and we can do internal radiotherapy with? And, and then I moved across the street from Sloan Kettering to Cornell Medical School, where at that time there was this non, very famous professor called Ron Crystal, who had a huge institute of genetic therapies. Uh, actually, he's a very famous pulmonologist by training. And at that time, that was 1997, 98, uh, we, we, uh, where gene therapy was booming. And they, and they, and they said, okay, we have those viruses, the adenoviruses. Can you, can you deliver adenoviruses? And I was trying to package adenoviruses in a liposomal form for gene therapy applications. And so, so you see, what happened is that I had basically what I realized retrospectively when I was doing it, I wasn't, aware of it at all, I had this liposomal technology as a platform technology, and I was trying to apply it for 10 years in different shapes and forms in different medical applications. And um, 
I ended up back in the UK after five years at Cornell. So the lab actually that started at Cornell Medical School, um, and I moved over to Imperial College to begin with, the Gene Therapy Center. And then after a year at the Drug Delivery Center at UCL, at the School of Pharmacy. And um, there again, we started building up a lab that was designing different types of delivery systems. And that's when my first kind of interaction with carbon nanostructures became apparent because I wanted to diversify a little bit the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of toolbox that we had available to us to design delivery systems with. So we had all these soft and readily translatable delivery systems, nanoparticles in the form of liposomes or, or polymer systems. And uh, I, I started coming across the new uh, nanomaterials that people were designing. Carbon nanotubes was the first one, fullerenes. So I played with both fullerenes and nanotubes in, in the early stages, in 2000, um, 2012, 2000, sorry, 2002, 2003. That, we're talking 2002, yeah. I moved to Imperial, at Imperial College 2002, and that's when we started with the first carbon nanotube experiment. In 2003, we did the first fullerene experiment, trying to deliver drugs with those carbon structures. And we did that for almost 10 years. So, uh, uh, I started collaborating through this carbon nanotechnology journey, accidentally with this peculiar Russian scientist called uh, Kostya Novoselov. So I, uh, it, was, it was a bit peculiar. Um, um, why would you work with another, yet another carbon nanotube? That was, a, of course, that's before the Nobel Prize or any, any famous uh, prize like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in 2009, I believe. So I'll tell you the story, which is interesting. So in 2009, I'm invited by Novoselov and Gein to visit Manchester from London. And I go give a seminar. Um and these are the guys who actually won the Nobel Prize for, for graphene. Yeah, yeah. Andre Gein is the leading uh, professor. Kostya Novoselov is the junior researcher. At that time, he was a research fellow in, in, in his laboratory. Um, uh, Kostya is a friend of mine now. So Kostya is, is, is three years younger than me, by the way. Um, um, Gein is older. He's is, is, is in his 60s. So, so Gein is this very famous uh, physics professor and they have this material, this new carbon nanostructure and I'm, I'm going to Manchester to give them a talk and trying to get them with all of our carbon nanotube research, trying to convince them to, to, to collaborate with us. Actually, with Novoselov, we already had started exchanging some materials and ideas. So I go there and I, they invite me in their seminar series. Gaim comes in and he's listening to um, my talk about carbon nanotechnology and carbon nanomaterial toxicology. So he, uh, ha halfway through the seminar, he stands up, he interrupts me and says, Costas, do you know what? I said, what? Um, do you know what's the most toxic carbon nanomaterial? I'm like, no, but that's exactly what I'm trying to show you here. We're trying to understand what's in toxic carbon nanomaterial. This is a sharpened pencil is the most toxic carbon nanomaterial. Because you can do all sorts of it. You can chew it. You can stab somebody with it and see how it feels. And I'm like, 
hundred. That's not what we have tried to do throughout this uh, uh, scientific journey. But I take your word for it. It's true that the sharpened pencil is a very um, toxic and very unsafe carbon nanostructure. Bottom line is that uh, they were enthusiastic about the medical space for uh, two-dimensional materials and graphene at that time. So we started working together. They taught us how to synthesize graphene oxide. Um, we started exchanging researchers between London and Manchester. And cutting a long story short, I got into this graphene business, which culminated in 2013, where um, I moved over from London to Manchester, along with the rest of the lab. The lab at that time was about a 15-person laboratory. Um, and we were kind of tasked with the quite difficult task that I think we can discuss later on um, uh, of translating a novel nanomaterial into something useful. Um, so we were based at the National Graphene Institute that I personally did not want to be based at because I knew how to talk to those guys, the nanotechnologists, as a, as a chemist, a chemical engineer. I wanted to be based at the medical school. So they did actually base me at the medical school. So our nanomedicine laboratory is based at the faculty of medicine within the medical uh, and biological researchers. And we are collaborating with the National Graphene Institute guys, but physically we are part of the medical school. And that's very important. If you want to build those multidisciplinary projects and, and uh, research programs, you need to have this kind of seamless dialogue and exchange. So that's the, a, a very long story with many transatlantic flights back and forth. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into graphene. And that's how the laboratory started building um, graphene technologies for biomedicine. I'm not sure whether to call you the FedEx of liposomes or, or whether to investigate whether you're in the witness protection program. And you know what? There's another thing. I don't want to give liposomes up ever. I, don't, I really want to have liposome projects ongoing. I'm very kind of loyal to, to liposomes. And there's another funny thing that all of my liposome friends are meeting me in conferences now and telling me, what the hell are you doing with these carbon nanostructures? This is not going to go anywhere ever. Just give it up. I don't understand why, but it's very funny, this whole interaction. Well, you're also our second consecutive guest who actually worked on drug delivery and and transitioned over to to neurotechnology or and bioelectronic medicine. So Kate Rosenbluth, who we had a couple of weeks ago, uh, she was working on adenoviral delivery to structures in the brain. Uh, interestingly, at UCSF as well, uh, before she actually went and transitioned over to develop the essential trauma treatment at Cala Health. Uh, so you're not alone there, Costas, and I think you have. Uh, it, it's a fantastic story to to listen to, uh, which again brings us to a very interesting kind of place where you described how your personal journey and and where the various applications of of graphene etc was used. Tell us a bit more about where you're taking this as part of your research in the area of of neurotechnology. Why is graphene better or different to some of the existing materials that is used in in the areas like platinum or or iridium or platinum iridium composites etc 
just again to um, before I go and address the specific issue about uh, um, alternative materials or more established materials in the space of neurotechnology, I just want to make I just want to make sure I convene the message um, to to your listeners that um, when you're designing a research program in translating an, a novel uh, material into a medical uh, application. My view has always been that you need to have build a portfolio of different options. You need to have fallback positions. I do not believe that uh, is a wise strategy to put all your eggs in one basket. So there is a possibility, of course, uh, that you will not have the resources. It, it so happened that in, in Manchester and with the current European funding that we're enjoying, we had this... Um, uh, advantageous position to try to explore two, three different research directions. So it is true that uh, in our uh, laboratory and within um, Manchester and uh, across the world, people are trying to translate um, graphene and two-dimensional nanostructures, as I mentioned, in different uh, application areas. So when we were designing the program, after I moved to Manchester, as I told you, in 2012, 2013, I wanted to make sure we have an, a portfolio of applications. So one that we're still pursuing is using graphene oxide and other functionalized forms of graphene suspensions, graphene sheet suspensions, um, as injectables for drug delivery purposes. So we are still doing that. This is an active program that we have. Yeah. It's just yeah. the timelines in the translation of such technologies are in the order of 20 plus years, best case scenario, given all the clinical trials, you know, the pharmaceutical development traditional pipeline is in the 20 plus year time frame that you need to be looking at with a, with a novel nanomaterial. So one of the fallback positions for us was to build a program around devices. And there was where the neurotech space felt, to me at least, as a very interesting proposition for two reasons. One, because you're building a device that will try to answer questions uh, that are difficult to answer, that are, um, there's a lot of interest in, in, in uh, more, both fundamental uh, science exploration. For example, all of the large brain projects needed devices in order to start listening and reading um, brain signals. So understanding the brain at the basic level needs technologies to come with it. So at that time, all this human brain project, all the big projects in the United States and China about uh, brain, understanding the brain and basic neurophysiology were booming, were starting. So I thought this is a very interesting uh, space to go with a technological proposition to allow neuroscientists to read the brain better, in better ways, more accurate, high fidelity. Um, and the other is the fact that with devices, you could translate things faster into the clinic. And I still believe that you can translate things faster into the clinic with devices compared to pharmaceutical, traditional pharmaceutical um, injectables. Um, 
We can discuss about that, and I cannot claim I'm the expert in this clinical translation. Maybe Carolina or you guys are much more experienced with that, but I still have as an academic, as a relative outsider of this translatability um, potential between traditional pharmaceutical agents and uh, devices, medical devices, including neurotechnologies. I still feel, uh, having been involved in both spaces, that the latter, the medical device space, translates into the clinic potentially much faster uh, than traditional pharmaceutical agents. So neurotech became a kind of a, an alternative a, 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 to the traditional pharmaceutical development of the material for the medical device uh, space. Um, the reason why we were tec technically and scientifically convinced with the very close friend and colleague of mine with whom we spun out in brain, uh, Jose Garrido, who's the chief engineer of the Graphene flagship, when we were building the program, the European program, that is, is that we were um, convinced that the combination of properties that Graphene was offering was really a uh, truly uh, step forward for the space uh, that Neurotech is trying to cover. And namely, the properties that I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, el electrical conductivity, flexibility in the design and the fabrication, um, reproducibility, and structural stability. All of these uh, properties in one single material are, I think, the uh, compelling proposition compared to, say, classic uh, or more traditional metallic um, uh, materials such as the ones you mentioned, platinum or platinum iridium, etc., etc. So we still know that these materials are brittle, they're difficult to handle, they're difficult to fabricate, and um, they are more traditional, of course, they have their, uh, therefore their supply chains are much more established. So whenever you want to go with a new material and a new proposition, you need to make sure that your supply chains are um, making sense and they're economically attractive. Um, but on the other hand, the combination of graphene and, and 2D materials uh, for the design of these neural interfaces, uh, transparency, flexibility, structural stability, and the capacity to inject an interface, so read and put electrical um, current through and from the neural tissue is a very compelling proposition. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. This is a fantastic background, and I think it's a it's a great um, opportunity to transition over to to our co-guest, um, Carolina Aguilar, who is the CEO and co-founder uh, and a board director at Inbrain Neuroelectronics. Um, because I think the story of of the how and the why, this is such a, an important opportunity and looking now at the application of that through an organization like, like InBrain. Um, so thank you, Carolina, for being with us today. I know it's off the way for you. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? I know your history sort of most recently before this was with uh, Medtronics working on diabetes and now all of a sudden um, you're across the pond and, and over in Europe working on neuroelectronic interfaces. 
Yeah, well, I have many things in common with Costas. Um, I'm also a failed basketball player, although I gave up completely. And um, I'm a neurotoxicologist as well. And uh, we both love Greece. So, so this is to start with. And um, since I was little, uh, my passion was the brain. Um, so I studied pharmacy and I went to the U.S. also to, to do this neurotoxicology and neurosciences. And since then, I always wanted to work in the brain, right? And undercover um, the mysteries of, of its functioning and, and, and add value, you know, to the scientific community and, and the commercial community. I was also a failed scientist in the sense that I hate waiting. So I, I study Parkinson and alpha-synuclein aggregation. Um, so all the consequences of pesticides with alpha-synuclein aggregation in Parkinson and Alzheimer's. And I, when I had to do the Western blots and wait for a full day, I, I decided it was not for me, right? So I ended up after my three years in the U.S. studying all this in Europe again. And uh, I work I work first in consumer goods, so in cosmetics, and I said, this is also not for me. <laughs> and then finally, um, Medtronic knocked on the door, and I started working on what I really was made for, which was uh, Parkinson's, I mean, deep brain stimulation, actually. So I, I start with deep brain stimulation uh, in Spain, then I moved to the European headquarters in Toloshenat, where I reside in Switzerland, and I spent... 10 years of my life developing commercially the brain stimulation, right? So I, I have been in all ranks of the company until I was met a global director and always since the beginning in very close contact with the patient. And I realized that the therapy was adding a unique value that technologically and technically had a lot to improve. And I was amazed on how even the big ones, I mean, I'm a Medtronic daughter, right? So I will always love Medtronic. And uh, it's been an incredible experience. And there's so many smart people there that, I mean, and I'm very, really thankful. But I also have seen Medtronic struggling on, on how to innovate on the space, right? And um, all these corporates, they have this Wall Street quarterly rhythm where they have to report all their financials and sometimes the short term really distracts from the innovation for the long term right so i've seen um i've seen a lot and i realized there was still a lot to do right and and when i thought that dbs you know had gone through through its peak and that was it i actually left and went to diabetes to do value-based healthcare, which um, now is great because now, um, thanks to value-based healthcare, I think we are designing this um, technology in in-brain with value-based healthcare principles and, and really going to the outcomes that matter to patients. So how graphene and how neurotechnologies can actually have a relevant cl clinical impact, right? But um, yes, I, I mean, at the beginning, I remember Jose and there was Mario, I had not met Costas yet. And they told me, hey, we're, we're trying to do this thing with graphene. I didn't even know what graphene was. I had to study it. And, um, and they said, you want to join? I was like, no, no, no. I mean, I'm done with DBS. Actually, like, I mean, I was, I was really interested in these value-based healthcare and I was trying to do everything. <laughs> and at the BC, I met 
Jose Garrido and Mario Capizzani. But then also Joe Sanfeliu, which is one of our investors, called me and said, hey, I have something really cool. I've been friends of Joe for the last 10 years doing some due diligence of his deals. And he called me and said, yeah, I have this, this thing. Do you want to look at it? So it was bi-directional. Um, they were calling me on one side, Jose and, and Mario, and then Joe called me as well and said, look at that, right? And at the beginning, I said, no, again, DVS. And, and um, when they showed me the prototype, and then I said, look, let's, let's, let's go to see people I really trust on this. So we went to see Franz Gillen, which was in my team. I don't know if you know Franz Gillen. It's been in Medtronic 26 years. He's already retired and still there. <laughs> the, the people that have worked the longest in Medtronic. But also Professor uh, Srinso in uh, UCL in London and, and the Sapiens guys, uh, Sapiens Steering Stimulation, Michel Decray. So I showed them this thing and they were like, we have to do it. You know, this is like, this changes everything. And I was like, what the hell? I guess we have to do it, right? So this is where I'll start, actually. Um, you know, we, we start working for free uh, at the beginning. It was about, we really have to make this happen. We needed an amazing team. And that's why the Sapiens people came into into action because I was, I was there with Medtronic acquired Sapiens. And I was there talking to w what Sapiens could deliver, right? And, and I was so amazed of the smartness of these people. And Michel de Cray is not even, is not only a genius, but he's also a Japanese tea ceremony teacher, right? Yes, he is a master. Master, a actually. I mean, yep. not teacher, of course. <laughs> and and you see Burbacker, he's a wild motorcycle, you know, and, 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 and does paragliding. And, you know, it's, it's people that goes beyond the geekness of, of, the neurotech industry, but have very balanced lives, right? So after, after all the blood and sweat that we have given to corporations, I wanted to do something fun and really transformational, but also have fun with a very mature and balanced group of people. So, so when they said yes, I was thrilled because not only we, we will get a lot of the learnings and the experience of guys that have worked for Philips, you know, for, for Sapiens, Medtronic, GTX Medical. I mean, people that you want to do in a startup in Europe, you better have the right people because that's going to make the difference, right? I mean, taking this off the ground from scratch is extremely challenging. And if you add a new material or a novel material, it's like a mission impossible. So we had to really put all the foundational pillars in place in order to make it happen. And, and, and this is where we are. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. Uh, that's that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Carolina. So can you tell us a bit more about kind of the areas that InBrain is currently working on? Is it just purely better materials for interfacing or is it a, is it, is it a composite kind of system at all levels, etc.? What, what, what can you share with us? Yeah, it's a bit of a platform, right? I mean, we're starting from from the basics because there's already regulatory paths and there's already reimbursement paths for, you know, for, let's say, brain modulation. So we have a cortical 
sensor and we have a deep sensor and we will be trying to make sense out of the network, right? When I when I joined the world of deep brain stimulation and brain modulation, it was all about targets. And I think now it's about circuits and networks, right? So I guess that that is a significant step uh, over the years since DBS was discovered in 1987 by Alim Luis Benavid and, and Polak. And of course, Patricia Limousin, she never gets quoted, but I think women also were there at that time. And, uh, you know, they did a brilliant job um, discovering the foundation and, and all this effectiveness of the targets. But now it's about this network. So we wanted to make sure that we have tools to actually look at the network. And, and, and then what I've been amazed about graphene is the resolution you can get, right? So not only the density, but also the spatial and temporal resolution in general. And because when you look at nucleus like the STN, the subthalamic nucleus, you know, the subthalamic nucleus has a limbic area, associative area, premotor area, and, and primary motor area, right? So if you go with the current interfaces, and again, the current interfaces to me are the deep brain modulation interfaces, right? That the one that I'm talking about from the beginning, to me, they are the most advanced because they've been already 33 years in commercial stage, right? So we have been able to learn a lot. And when you look at these nuclei and you see these leads and, and how, in a way, rough they are, you wonder how are we going to really understand how these networks work, right? So when we realized that we had that resolution and that we could read with dozens of contacts and you make you can make them hundreds but you know is it really useful for those small places but when you read with big data and then you understand all these frequency bands that we can now get access to at 0.1 hertz right so you can go in all ranges of these frequencies and you can undercover these new biomarkers that probably metals never went to you know no, never could be read at that level then you realize that you have tools that can really undercover how the brain works and therefore how to make it work better, right? So we are we are starting from cortical applications. And when it comes to these applications, we are just looking at Parkinson for now because Parkinson is so visual and has so much data that we can very easily benchmark against, right? So not only you have three major companies, Boston, and uh, Boston, uh, sorry, Abbott and uh, Medtronic already working on the space with a lot of data, a lot of publications, class one clinical evidence. You can go there and just benchmark yourself very easily and add a ton of value, a ton of value um, quite quickly. But of course, it's just to start with um, because the properties of the material and what you can do with it could go really beyond that and more i mean it's about new biomarker discovery and therefore new therapy discovery but we are going to start from from what it's out there so we can get quicker to to market yeah that's great uh, i actually have a question as a european entrepreneur who is running a european company at this point of time uh it's also important to kind of bring out the difficulties that, that entrepreneurs, especially in the area of, of neuromodulation face in Europe. 
So can yes. you actually tell us a bit more from your experience of, of setting the company and, and getting the company to where you are at uh, in terms of what needs to be changed or how do people need to be educated about this type of technology, which is fundamentally transformative when it works and in, yes. in with the examples that you've given from the deep brain stimulation that we are you're trying to make better but logistically to making it happen i think i think there are uh, different type of hurdles that a european entrepreneur has to endure compared to an american entrepreneur so do you want to shed a bit more light and flavor to that because i think people will really appreciate uh, that side of things sure sure just to wrap up the the conversation before we're not trying to do dbs right we're trying to use the learnings of dbs to really transform the field um, and combine hopefully cortical and deep in a way that we can modulate networks right and when it comes to doing this in europe the most in well first of all i'm not sure um where are we from <laughs> I mean, I live in Switzerland. Um, Bert and Michelle are in Holland, right? We have costas between Manchester, Greece. Uh, so, I mean, we built this company as a cloud company to start with. We wanted to be digital and global from day one because, first of all, we understand the difficulties of the European market and we also value let's say the ecosystem in the US. So we know we have to be you know, in these two places and, and probably later in Asia. So we have to keep agile, right? And, and this is something, of course, that comes from my learnings in corporate, which are a little bit the opposite, right? So first of all, we, we are a cloud company, let's say. Um, second, you have to be based somewhere. <laughs> and Coming back to your difficulties, the, the, the most important challenge, I think, for every company, but especially in Europe, is the neuro, neurotech talent, right? So where to source that talent and, and make sure that you have the best people to meet the ambition. And, and I think this is a still a challenge. So we, we are getting very good people, but of course, there's not as many good people probably and, and and i hope people forgive me uh for what i'm about to say but i mean us is a real neurotech hub right there's 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 a, even even if therapies like dbs were invented in europe still there's been a lot of more investment and a lot of more education and and big uh, medtech companies um typically or, or originating from the us right so it's a fact. And what we are trying to do is to create, create in Europe a neurotech hub, right? And really make Europe also central for neurotech. Um, so, so we share a little bit <laughs> the balance. So yeah, the team is the first. And of course, there is uh, something that is critical for neurotech to succeed is all the regulatory path, the clinical path. So the clinical is great because you have very smart people, very diverse people, and I, I'm a firm believer of diversity. So I enjoy actually mixing countries and cultures. And, and after being so long in corporate, I managed to understand them <laughs> at the beginning. 
I tell you something when I, when I was I was a Spanish right coming to Tolo to work in Medtronic and I will you know as a product manager my first job or market development manager I will I will create a brochure right or I will create something and the Spaniards would be like oh, this is amazing Carola the Italians would be like oh great I love it the French would be like hmm, I'm not sure um, you know maybe you can change that and that is like okay more or less we'll understand each other uk will always say no you know we we wanted um <laughs> i don't know you know three pages shorter or whatever and the germans were the more difficult the most difficult they were the most demanding but of course germany by the way in europe in medtech is 26 or 30 percent of the market right so they yeah. dominate the market and they know it right so they do with europe when you're in a European headquarters, whatever they want. So, you know, it was very hard to adapt all these things to everybody and keep them happy, right? But hey, after 13 years, more or less, I understand them. So what I wanted to say is that bringing all these clinical teams for all over Europe is very rewarding. But then there is Brexit, you know, there is, I mean, all these, all these, uh, economic and political situation in Europe is not favoring Europe, right? Graphene flagship is a perfect example of the biggest ever coordinated research activity and, and uh, with a proper uh, financial support, I mean, a billion euros to make it happen. If everything would be like that, Europe would be thriving, right? But we have all these silos and we have all these political conflict so it is definitely not unified right so working with mhri in the uk for the uk path now that brexit is on working with um, the regulatory bodies the notified bodies in europe for the c mark and finally working with the fda and i mean it's it's hard work in us just work with fda which which by the way they are super collaborative and then suddenly you get medicare done if you get a you know, FDA breakthrough designation, and then you are reimbursed and in every state. Here, you have to fight country by country, right? I mean, get CMR, but then fight country by country uh, regulatory uh, peculiarities. N not even with CMR is enough. You know, in, in Belgium, in France, you have to do double the studies, and then you have to fight the reimbursement everywhere, right? So it is a tedious work, but hey, that's why we need an amazing team to make it happen. So you, you've deliberately positioned InBrain as a, as a cloud-based company or as a pan-European team, um, and, and you want to create this neurotech hub in, in Europe, um, but you also confess that some of, some of there's a large talent pool available here in the U.S. Would you consider adding American team members that are based in the U.S.? Of course. I mean, really, I spent three years in the U.S. because I love U.S. And, and I appreciate to value the, the open... I mean, that's why I remind, reminded so long in Medtronic, right? Because it's really an open-minded culture. I always was... You know, this, this thing about the American dream that you can do everything you want uh, if you really work for it, it is true. I mean, it happened when I arrived at, in the U.S., but it happened also in Medtronic. It's about where you want to go, show it, make a plan, make it happen, and they allow you to do it, right? So 
I love these people, self-driven, ambitious, so by no means, and, and we now have collaborations with Tim Denison, is another of my favorite people <laughs> in the field, and especially women, really, Jojo. Um, I have also a mission on that, on that front, right? So incredible um, data scientists, engineers, and we, we are hiring, and it will be amazing to have a, a real diverse team with many Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and and I want to. I just want to assure you that that as the only American on our on our um, session today, that economic and political turmoil has infected us all. So don't don't doubt that at all. Don't start me on that. Don't start me on that. <laughs> no, we're not a political podcast. We're not going there. I have no interest yeah. in going there. All right. So, do you want to tell us a bit more about the conversations or the the um, the eccentric kind of topics that might have come up with respect to the investor space as well. So you spoke of the talent. Uh, what about the investor community? I believe that that is also different to what you actually see in the med device investor community in the US who are much more cognizant of the technologies, et cetera. So do you want to tell us a bit more? Because I think we can use this platform to kind of raise the profile of, of such topics among the investor community, because I know that there are quite a few number of people who are looking at it, but they don't really understand where and how and what they should be doing in the space. Uh, yeah. And the investors that I've spoken to, they always, especially in Europe, when they define med tech, it's mostly app-based solutions and, and it's not really... Uh, kind of hardware disease modifying technology, which is what I would personally call med tech, but somehow that definition seems to have been lost uh, somewhere there. So, do you want to say anything on that topic, Carolyn? Yeah, I mean, I have one year of investor experience apart from my my friendship with with Joseph Sanfeliu, right? So, what I can say is that at the beginning, when I start fundraising, I found the investor community quite conservative. I mean, they want innovation, but then they want so many things on the list to, to put the money on <laughs> that it was striking. But, um, well, it's, it's a community of very knowledgeable people and, and they see incredible things every day. And of course, it's difficult to differentiate what could really make a splash from what is probably gonna stay you know low in in the radar so i have a lot of respect for this community i have to say what i observed lately um is that there is this group of medtech vcs and and medtech has been quite conservative if you look at it right and there is the the world of deep tech vcs so quantum computing semiconductors and i think these two worlds should be merged right yeah but but they have super different philosophies so i dream of a world that it is more balanced as i said right i that that we just don't look at the european ecosystem and the asian ecosystem and the u.s ecosystem but that people are more global first of all and more dynamic on exchanging uh, learnings from different industries because i think the innovation will come from the combination of these industries and I, I see a very endogenous ecosystem, the, the medtech VC world. So I think this is changing 
I think there's a new breed of BCs, and I don't know if I'm risking my life here <laughs> because we're fundraising, of course, all the time. You know, startups are yeah. all their lives fundraising. No, but really, I think I think these people should talk to each other, and probably also the med tech world should evolve into more deep tech and vice versa, right? I mean. Uh, and this is also what we are trying to do with InBrain, right? We are combining, thanks to Graphene, we can combine the all good med tech world with modern electronics and, and, and data processing and wearables and, you know, more of a consumer world, which is also where my journey starts. And I think if we are not close to the consumer and we keep them as, we keep treating them as patients, we will fail, you know? Chronic disease people, are 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 patients but are more than 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 ever people right so they are consumers and of course we have to adapt to the disease condition but yeah i think the bc world should get broader hopefully and um i hope they help us a lot and we will also hopefully help them a lot yeah well having having spent pretty much the whole week with with VCs and investors at all levels, um, I can tell you that they they seek inspiration and that they believe in in strong teams, which you've you guys have definitely put together. Um, and before we close out, just quickly, and because you guys are both um, basketball enthusiasts, I have to get your opinion on who is the best. Is it Michael or is it LeBron or is it somebody <laughs> else? <laughs> Well, I'm US centric, so you gotta, you know, take that into account. <laughs> okay. Um, I leave that to customers. No, no, Carolina, you go first. I'm, 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 I'm really a failed basketball player, so I, I like Gasol and I like LeBron, and I cannot choose <laughs> in this field. I, uh, yeah, I, I probably cannot choose on this. I'm not qualified. You're too Spanish centric. Um, Man, I said I said Gasol and LeBron. <laughs> I think. Um, okay, Jojo. I, I think. I'm, all right, you you asked for it, so I'm gonna give you a more elaborate response. Uh, I'm gonna go out for. It. All right, so I think Julius Irving is the archetypal basketball player, Dr. J. Dr. J. And then Magic was a work of art. Playmaker, no other, complete visionaire, and of course Michael Jordan is a is a is a natural phenomenon. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and then LeBron is a, a natural phenomenon version two. It's like watching Rocky two. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm not sure this guy completely out of outer space. Uh, in terms of physical, the combination of physical ability. And, but I like Obama scoring three-pointers on the trail more than anyone else, to be honest. <laughs> Taking on Steph, Steph Curry for the three. Well, I, I just want to say, um, Carola, you have a great quote on one of your pages, which is, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And it, it sure seems like you guys are on the path to creating a new future. Um, both in terms of technology and leadership in the field. 
And we really appreciate having you guys on today. And we can't wait to see what you guys will do in the future. Um, and just a note to the audience, they are recruiting and they are uh, also fundraising. So you can be in touch with them directly. Or if you need an introduction, feel free to reach out to Arun or me as uh, the only cost to you for that intro. We'll be leaving a, a review and a positive or a subscription for our podcast on your favorite platform. With that, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And, and thank you guys for bringing this amazing podcast together because they help the community globally, by the way. So, I mean, you are the example. Um, men, women, Europe, US, and, and Neurotech all together. So really thank you for doing this for all of us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.